Let's turn on our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 this morning. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. It's always best to not only hear the Word of God, but to read it as well. It has a deeper impact that way. And please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, receive that Bible as a gift from the Lord this morning. Two verses this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. The Word of the Lord, verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once... So there's no reincarnation. But after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin, that is not to deal with sin the second time, but for salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word And we love it. We love what it does in us. It is a living word. We thank you that we can come to your Bible and know that we're always receiving the absolute truth on any subject that you addressed in it, Lord. And we'll never be disappointed or ashamed of our trust and our faith that we place in you and in the revelation of your word. And we thank you that we never turn to this book. We need never do it at least without accompanied by you, Lord, and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we study these two verses this morning, that you would take every thought and intent of your heart that is behind them, that you would communicate them into our minds and into our souls, Lord, into our spirits, and speak to us what you know each and every one of us needs to hear from you today. Lord, all of us have lived a different life than the other. We're all different. We're all gifted in different ways, different life experiences, and yet we all have a common need to hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that any hindrance to hearing your voice this morning would just be removed now by your Holy Spirit and allow us to hear you from your throne. And we ask this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture teaches us that every single one of us in this room and every single person in this whole wide world has a future appointment with death. You notice in verse 27, for and as it is appointed for men to die once. I think that this raises the question, and the question is this, when and where did this thing called death come into existence? And we know from the revelation of God's Word that death does not have its origin in God. The Bible declares, by man came death. By man, not by God. By man came death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. God never intended that any individual human being or that mankind as a whole would ever know or experience death. Death was introduced into the human condition, into human history by virtue of the sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden. 
Someone may protest at this point and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think that's a fable. I think all of that is complete mythology. How can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man, the sin of man, and the resultant fall in the Garden of Eden is true? What proof is there that I am a descendant of Adam and that I am fallen as the Bible teaches? Well, don't get yourself ready for some long treatise on my part. The Apostle Paul from the pages of Scripture stands up and says, and by the Spirit of God, I will answer that question in four words. And the four words are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, when he said, In Adam all die. And death reveals every single one of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam and death ties each and every one of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, the Bible teaches that death is an enemy. It's not a friend of mankind. Death is an enemy. And it's interesting as you read the Bible, as it speaks about death, it doesn't speak about death as some kind of a, uh, certainly not as a theoretical proposition, and, but not, even not as some kind of a distant clinical way. Uh, death is personified in the Bible. And death is an enemy to us, the Bible teaches, and it is an enemy that each of us has an appointment with. I like the old story... Legend tells of a merchant in Baghdad who one day sent his servant, servant to the market. And before very long, the servant came back, and he's white, and he's trembling, and he's in great agitation. And he said to his master, Down in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned around, I saw it was death that jostled me. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Master, please lend me your horse, or I must hasten away to avoid her. I'll ride to Samara, and there I will hide, and death will not find me. Well, the merchant lent his horse to his servant, and the servant galloped away in great haste. And later the merchant went down to the marketplace himself, and he saw death standing in the crowd. And he went over to him, and he said, Why did you frighten my servant this morning? Why did you make a threatening gesture toward him? And death said, that was no threatening gesture. It was only the, a start from surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. <laughs> Ooh. And because we are appointed to death, because each of us does have a future appointment with death, we can't outrun it. We certainly can't outlive death. So we need to be properly prepared for death when it does come. We say that's kind of uh, bad news. Or it gets worse. We notice also in that same verse 27 that the passage also teaches us that not only will every person in this world face death, 
But each of us will also experience judgment following that death. It is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment. That is, we will then, following death, we will then face God and give an accounting to Him for our lives. In other words, death is not the most awesome or the most fearsome event that lies in any person's future. It's not the hardest thing we will face in our future. I think that many people, if not most people, think that it is, but it isn't. The most sobering and potentially disturbing and frightening thing that we will face in our future is the day that each of us will one day stand before God and we will give an account to Him for the life that we have lived. The fascinating thing about this judgment is that that judgment of standing before God one day is that it will be based upon one single great fact from our life, and that is what we have done with Jesus. Because uh, whether we have what we did with God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't teach that God is going to take and pick through necessarily, even for a person that heads into eternity Christless, that every single one of our sins are going to be put up on some kind of a screen. I suppose there's the potential for it if a person would want to protest with God over God's assessment that they are a sinner and that their sin has separated them from God. But the single great question one day before the white throne judgment of God, for those that don't know the Lord or they reject Christ, is going to be the rejection of Jesus. That is the single great sin for which there is no forgiveness. The Bible teaches that if we've put our faith in Jesus in this life, then our name is in the book of life, And on that day of judgment, when we stand before the Lord, we will stand before the Lord not knowing Him as our judge, but knowing Him as our Savior. But if we've rejected Jesus and rejected the salvation that He died to provide for us, then our name will not be found in the book of life, and we will then face Jesus as our judge. Everyone will face Jesus ultimately after this life. The only question is, will we face him as our Savior, or will we face him as our judge? And if we face him as our judge because we failed to put our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, and our life name was never put in the book of life as a result, he will be forced to dispatch us into hell, into Gehenna, which is a place of eternal judgment. It's described in the Bible as a place of eternal separation from God. Now, there's a lot of characteristics that make up uh, that place of eternal judgment, but I think that's the most horrible characteristic, not speaking of the flames or anything like that or the wailing or the gnashing of teeth, but that that eternal lake of fire is a place where a person is separated ultimately and finally from God 
and from the blessings of his life. Even a person that lives in this world that has rejected the Lord is still the beneficiary of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this world. He keeps some semblance of order in this world, and there are blessings to that as a result. And, and, and then there's the body of Christ. There are Christians who the Holy Spirit works through, and, and they are a blessing to mankind in the world today. But imagine being a place where, number one, the devil and the Antichrist, the false prophet, they are in that eternal lake of fire. The demons are ultimately fallen angels, all cast into that eternal lake of fire. Imagine being in a place where there is nothing of the good and the virtue and the blessing and the holiness and the light of God in that environment. It's just pure, unadulterated evil and darkness. Not a single nanosecond of a break from that. Hell is a terrible place because it's a place of eternal separation from God. Paul wrote, to the church at Thessalonica, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction, and here it is, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Ooh! I mean, sometimes for me as a Christian, I go involved in spiritual warfare that can be so heavy, so difficult, and I, that's with the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm in... I'm in a world where uh, there's still a battle going on for the souls of men and women. There's still the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's bad enough. I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to be in a place where there's nothing of God and His beauty or His glory there. It's described as a place of outer darkness. Jesus described it in the parable of the wedding garment in Matthew chapter 22. And he said, and so he said to him in the parable, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting to realize that Jesus spoke uh, of hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible and warning people away from it. You see, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Yeah, he did. Tremendous warnings against this place called hell. It's a place of unending fire. Again, Jesus declared, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand makes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that is never quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot makes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame than having two feet than to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye makes you to sin, pluck it out. And it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not 
quenched. The Lord is not advocating that we cut off a a hand or or a foot or gouge out an eye, speaking about uh, being ruthless with anything in our life to separate it from us, anything that would put us in danger of one day ending up in hell. Hell is also described as a place of torment. In Revelation chapter 14, we're told, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, Jesus speaking, talking about being cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's very important to realize that there is only one unforgivable sin in the Bible. There's only one sin for which there is no forgiveness. Is it lying? Mm -mm. Is it stealing? No. Is it murder? No, not even that. Is it adultery? No, not even that. The Bible teaches that the only sin that cannot be forgiven is a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord and then to die in that condition. It is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reject the salvation that is found in Him. As Jesus said in John 3.16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, For God so loved the world, that includes you, that He gave His only begotten Son. He put His Son between every person and hell in an endeavor for each person to be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him or trusts in Him for salvation should not perish but have everlasting life. To believe or to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins means I will not perish. And conversely, though, to reject Him as my Savior means that I will, it will be to perish. And so if a person dies in that Christ-rejecting condition, it puts them beyond the possibility of salvation. But it's also important to realize that ultimately standing before Jesus as uh, your judge rather than as your Savior is the most easily avoidable thing in all of life. How do I avoid it? How do I avoid this appointment? One day I'm going to stand before Him. That is a given. That is the truth about every single one of us. How do I avoid standing before Him As my judge, by putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and if you do that this morning, your name will be written into God's book of life. It's as simple as that. So how can it be that simple? Because Jesus did all of the heavy lifting. In fact, he did all of the lifting related to our salvation. Our salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. It's free to us, but only because He paid an indescribable price. As the Son of God, 
to provide it to us. And Jesus doesn't want any of us to stand before him and us and for him to be our judge. He doesn't want that to happen any more than you want that to happen. He wants to be your Savior. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you sit here this morning, you say, I don't know anything about God. I don't know anything about the Bible. I've wandered in. A friend has invited me, whatever it is. I wonder what God's will is for my life. I can answer that question at least in part. What is God's will for your life? He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. You say, I want to walk in the will of God, then become saved this morning. That's his desire. That's what he would have you to do. But he's never going to put anybody in a headlock and force us up into heaven. He'll never violate our freedom to choose or to reject even his son. And so the choice is with us, but he makes his will and his desire very well known to us. And because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, we cannot charge God with unfairness in all of this. Not when he has provided such a wonderful escape from judgment at tremendous expense to himself. Man is no innocent victim if he ends up standing before God as his judge. It will only be because a person has made a conscious, deliberate decision to reject the salvation that is found in Christ. Said, I don't want heaven. I don't want uh, Jesus. I don't want that life. And then when a person decides that and dies in that condition, then God just simply honors the decision or the reservations that we have made ourselves for eternity. God gives us the freedom of choice, and then he honors the choice that we make. Sometimes people ask, how could a God of love send someone to hell? And they usually follow up and say, I could never believe in a God or follow a God that would send someone into hell. And it's a great misunderstanding of the Scriptures. God doesn't send anyone there. Again, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. We decide our eternal destinations by what we do with His salvation, what we do with Jesus. The responsibility lies with us. The Bible teaches that hell was not created for man but was created for the devil and created for those angels that fell with the devil and followed him in his rebellion against God. But if a person is determined to follow in Satan's footsteps, rebel against God, then that person will also have Satan's eternal portion as well. Jesus said concerning this in Matthew chapter 25, He said, and then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is pretty serious stuff. This is really heavy stuff. This judgment is final and it's eternal. 
If I stand before God and He is my judge, there are no appeals, no complaints, no excuses. It's over. So God isn't kidding about this. And Jesus isn't wasting His breath about this. Our physical death is not the end of our existence. It is just the beginning of our eternities. And the most important decision we will make in this life has to do with the reservations we make for ourselves for eternity. Someone says, I don't like to hear that. I don't believe in that. Fine. But everybody has a right to hear the truth. And everybody has a right to know what Jesus has to say on the subject. And Jesus said, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will declare, they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said, and I say to you, that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what's fascinating about that second verse? He spoke that to the Jewish religious leaders. He spoke that to a religious crowd. There are more people on the broad road to judgment today on planet earth. And it's always been true. On their way to judgment on a road of mistaken false religion than are on the road to eternal judgment that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The world we live in is a very religious world. But religion does not give us access to heaven. Jesus gives us access to heaven. He is the lone provision for us to one day be there. And it's important to listen very, very carefully to Jesus about these things. Sin is a big, big deal, and it requires God's forgiveness. And it not only requires God's forgiveness, but God's forgiveness His way, and that is through repenting of our sin and putting our trust in His Son. A lot of people don't like to hear about judgment. Don't raise your hand. Makes them uncomfortable. Worse than that, there are a lot of people who are just outright dismissive of any idea of judgment or ultimately being held accountable for their life. And it certainly marks this culture that we live in and I think some of it occurs because we live in a culture that increasingly makes the whole idea of ultimately being held responsible for our lives kind of foreign to us. I'm not an old man, but I'm getting there. I am what you called oldish. So I've seen a few things in life. 
And I've watched the country that I live in change dramatically in a lot of different ways. And increasingly, over my lifetime, people are not being held fully responsible for their actions and the way that we once were. I see all of the excuses and the blame shifting that goes on. It's everyone else's fault that we are what we are and that we behave the way that we behave. I live in a culture that renames sins as if somehow that makes any difference at all in the eyes of God. Sins are now called diseases and addictions. After all, a person can't really be held responsible for their actions when they had a predisposition to practice what the Bible calls sin and thus prohibits. And so our thinking is being quietly and powerfully fashioned to reject any kind of judgment as being unfair. After all, the idea is that people and life are far too complicated and diverse to be able to put under some blanket definition of right and wrong and good and sin, even if those definitions from, come from God himself. And we can all see what the world has become as a result of this. What has become as a result of the loss of a healthy fear of a future judgment by God and that we will one day be held responsible for the life that we have lived. And number two, when sin and wrong behavior is legitimized and its seriousness is explained away. I'll tell you what happens in a world like that, just what we're seeing happen in the world all around us. That kind of a world becomes more and more dangerous it becomes more and more sin-addicted, and it becomes more and more evil. And the fact of the matter is, is that God is very unimpressed with our grand experiment and our grand definitions, and so he speaks the truth to us that one day we will be judged for the life that we have lived. Well, let me close with this. Because we are one day... Each of us has an appointment with death and an appointment with God. It's something that we should prepare for. I think about how people prepare themselves for all manner of things in life. People are always preparing for things. It's not like it's a foreign concept to us to prepare for a future event. This is something that marks our lives every single day. People prepare for tests by studying for them ahead of time. People prepare for an occupation or for a job by getting specific training or education required to be successful in landing that job and then being successful in that job. People prepare for childbirth. They prepare for the bar exam. They prepare for retirement and so forth. On and on it goes. And oftentimes, a whole lifetime of preparation and just a vast number of these lesser things goes on without a person giving even five minutes of sober thought to preparing for the two most inevitable things that are coming their way in life. And that is, number one, death, 
And number two, the day that they will stand before God. How does a person properly prepare for a future appointment with death and a future appointment with God? Simple as I've already said, through putting my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and putting my faith in the price that he paid upon that cross to provide me with the forgiveness of those sins. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And that's beautiful and it's simple and it's true. Someone might ask, if I trust in Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins, how come I don't have to bear the judgment that my sins deserve? It's because Jesus has already borne the wrath and the judgment that your sin deserves. There's this thing in our law, it's called double jeopardy, where you cannot be tried and, and convicted and, and uh, uh, have to fulfill a sentence for the same crime twice. And that whole law of double jeopardy goes all the way back to ancient times, Roman times, even before Roman times. It is because Jesus has fully borne my judgment and the wrath that my sin deserves, that God would be unjust if he then held me accountable for those same sins. And so he will not. But nobody got away with anything related to my sin. We are forgiven because somebody else bore the judgment and the wrath that our sin Deserved. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we're saying that we recognize that death and everlasting punishment is the penalty that our sins deserve, but we also recognize that Jesus bore that judgment so we wouldn't have to. And Jesus has overwhelmed both death and judgment for us. Jesus, the Bible teaches, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, to the person that puts their faith in him as their Savior, he reduces this thing called death to a butler in our lives. Death becomes a servant to God and his purposes and a servant to us one day. Where death is no longer this great, terrible enemy that it is before we come to know Christ, but death becomes that butler that simply ushers us out of the temporariness of this body one day into a body that is eternal and made for heaven and made for us in heaven. And so it is through faith in Christ that death is, is, has been defeated and reduced to a butler. And Jesus has also overwhelmed judgment because of our faith in Christ, I will never face him as my judge. I will never face him as one who has spent my lifetime rejecting him and his sacrifice. Think about that. Think about standing before him one day, still bearing the wounds of the price that was paid for the forgiveness of sin 
And I stand there as a part of his creation. What, what am I going to say to him? What, what excuses or self-justification, what words could come out of my mouth at a moment like that? I'll never have to face him as my judge. I'll never see that countenance on his face or that in his eyes. We will be personally greeted at the time of death by Jesus upon our entrance into heaven, and we will know him only as our Savior and not as our judge. And I say praise the Lord for that. And until a person prepares for these two future appointments, first with death and then with judgment, all of life, no matter how significant the decisions in life, is the equivalent of moving the deck chairs, rearranging them on the deck of the Titanic. In other words, ultimately, they make no difference at all. Nothing else matters until we are prepared with a victory over those two future appointments, and that is found through a faith in Christ. Let's pray together. I want to ask as we sit here in a spirit of prayer, if there's anyone here this morning you have never, ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, ask God for the forgiveness of your sins and put your trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for your sins. And you would like to do that this morning. The most important decision that you will make in life, nothing else compares to it. And as a result of making Jesus your Savior today, to be fully prepared, wonderfully prepared for an appointment with death and an appointment before God. And you'd like to say, I would like to do that today. I would like to wrap those things up in my life and take care of them. And I ask that you just stand right in this room where it is that you're seated. You just stand up. And then what I'll do is I will lead you in a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. And then I will pray a prayer for you as you begin your life with Christ. So that's what will happen to you. Jesus, every single person that he called in the scriptures, he called to follow him. He called for them to do so publicly. God bless you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So this is a really big deal to God, and it's a really big deal to us. So take the stand, and it will just be the beginning of a life of taking a stand for God and for Christ in this world.